The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. We're working our way through this book of 1 Corinthians and Paul writes this letter to lay the foundation of the gospel and to continue to disciple the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was a church that Paul had been part of, had ministered to for 18 months. And uh, Corinth was a busy city with a lot going on. I've heard some liken it to a cross between New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, if you will. It was a mismatch of those three types of cities. That There was great wealth, there was a lot of art and, and cultural things going on, and there was also a great deal of sin and confusion and uh, immorality all happening in the church of Corinth. And yet God called the people to Himself to serve Him to be used for His glory, much like He has done even in this land in which we live. And as we've worked our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've seen as we've gotten deeper into the book, and beginning with chapter 7, Paul begins to address some issues that the church in Corinth wrote to him about. And we've seen him talk about things like marriage. We've seen him talk about use of liberty and and talking about um, meat sacrifice to idols and all these things. And last week we began this topic, this discussion of head coverings. He's talking about order and structure within the worship service and what that looks like. And he'll talk about head coverings, he'll talk about communion, and he'll talk about the use of spiritual gifts. And a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we saw at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, the transition into this section, we saw that we are all called to do all for the glory of God. And more specifically, that God is glorified in the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ died, He came and died to save sinners. Therefore, if you remember as we worked our way through that, that we are called to, number one, do nothing to hinder the Gospel, and number two, do everything to further the Gospel. And it's important to remember this, because it is clear as we move forward through chapters 11-14, through and consider Paul's instructions, that he's very much concerned with making sure that the Gospel is what is front and center of their corporate worship, and that He is glorified in all that they say and do. So, before we look at our text though, I just want to note a couple of things that I think are of importance. Number one, as I mentioned last week, this is a difficult text. It's difficult in a number of ways. Uh, Number one, because it's hard to, uh, to understand the grammar and exactly what Paul is saying sometimes as we translate it from Greek To English, there's a lot of difficulties in the text, and we're trying to figure out exactly what Paul meant. But it's also difficult because it's difficult to stomach sometimes culturally, as it runs against the grain, if you will, of our culture and the difference between men and women in particular, where our culture has said there's no difference, and if there is a difference, it's a difference that we choose. Whereas Scripture says it's not a difference that we choose, it's a God-ordained difference, something that is planted deep within us that is in our nature. I also want you to remember that there's a lot of information contained in these verses. So last week, I spent an entire week on point number one, laying the foundation, and we're probably not going to cover everything. This is something I've had to wrestle with, even myself, this week. As as I continued, even on the way to church, to continue to write new notes and say, oh yeah, I need to mention that. And oh yeah, I need to address this. And oh, and then I'm going, well, I only have so much time, and I don't, I don't want to make this a 10-part series on this section, not because I think that would be unprofitable, but because I also want to get to the rest of what 1 Corinthians says. And we will never be able to 
uh, unpack everything here in this context. But instead, we are lifelong learners by which we continue to grow and understand and study God's word. And that's something that should happen uh, throughout all of life, not just uh, expect it to happen in 30 minutes or 50 minutes, if you're me, on a Sunday morning. Instead, my goal is to communicate the main theme of what, of what Paul is saying here. And number three, I want you to understand, and I want to keep, make note of the fact that we must listen, not just with a heart to learn, but instead a heart to obey. That as we come to God's Word, our goal must always be a heart to obey. So without further ado, let's look at our text for this week. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2-16. through 16. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Starting at verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore... The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the man originates from, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and especially the understanding of His Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week we looked at point number one. Number one being the principle. Look at verse three once again. It says this. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. The point is that men and women are equally valuable but gifted differently and are called to honor God in different roles within the family and the church. And also that just as submission in marriage is meant to be a picture, like communion is a picture, and baptism is a picture, of the church submitting to Christ, in the same way submission to headship should be, must be reflected when the church gathers together. That there must be a reflection of that submission to headship even when we gather, and especially when we gather on Sunday morning. For that too serves as a reminder of our submission to Christ, our relationship as His bride to Him. So point number one is the foundation for the remaining points 
the material we're going to cover today. And I don't want to belabor point number one. I took a whole week to do that last week. But I, as I, I just want to mention and remind you of what we talked about last week, that we need to get right what is in our heads, not just what is on our heads. That the two are both important. It's important that we understand not just that head coverings should have been worn by the Corinthian women, or even that they sh- whether they should or shouldn't be worn today, but also why. So having understood that principle, we then move on to look at the second point in our sermon outline. And if you were not here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the message. Go online and listen to the message from last week and get that foundation, that principle, before we move on and seek to understand the rest of it. We need to understand the principle of the way God has made men and women differently and the way we live out those differences in marriage, in the family, the way we live out those differences even within the church. So having understood the principle, let's look at the second point in our sermon outline. The second point is the problem. Number two, the problem. Look at verses four through six with me. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. It is clear that the head covering in the context in which Paul was writing was understood as a symbol of submission. That the, the head covering was clearly seen as a symbol of submission uh, by Paul's readers. We know this because Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered disgraces his head. And every woman who does the same with her head uncovered disgraces her head. He says in both instances, they bring shame to their head. And who or what is he referring to when he says their head? Well, while some have tried to argue otherwise, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here because I think the context makes it clear. I think he's talking about more than just their physical head. It's more than just they bring shame to their physical head, the part of the body that's affixed to the neck. But instead, the head that he is talking about is the same head as verse 3. Christ, who is the head of man, and man, who is the head of woman. It's clear from the context. So Paul is saying that if the Corinthian men pray, or they prophesy, uh, by the way, the prophecy, by the way, is is the speaking forth of Scripture, of applying the truth of Scripture. Sometimes we think of prophesying as predicting the future, but it's so much more than that, that it's speaking the truth of God, and in, in many, in a very real sense, someone who has the gift of prophecy may be a pastor or a teacher. They have the gift of taking God's Word and applying it, helping people apply it to their lives. They're speaking forth the truth of God. So Paul is saying that if men, if they pray or they prophesy in the worship service, with their head covered, they disgrace Christ. And if the Corinthian women pray or prophesy with their heads uncovered, they disgrace the men who are in authority over them, namely their fathers, their husbands, their church elders, and in so doing also disgrace Christ. You see, head coverings were, I believe, wholeheartedly a cultural expression, at at the very least, of the principle we just talked about. That they were an expression of the principle of headship. 
See, they were a cultural expression of a greater reality. Just like the holy kiss was a cultural expression of a greater reality. And I hope to, to explain this point better. But the holy kiss was a cultural expression of love and affection. And in the same way, a head covering was a cultural expression of submission and headship. Thus the problem in Corinth was that women were disgracing the men by not covering their heads. We, we know this because the, the imperative, the command, or the corrective action to be taken, if you will, is found in verse 6. And the thrust of this whole text is not with men stop covering your head, although that is said don't cover your head to men. The context, the thrust of the text is women, let your head be covered. The, the command, the imperative is clear. Verse 6, let her cover her head. Paul says, if a woman doesn't cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. And then he says, but if, it, if that is disgraceful, fully expecting the Corinthian readers to say, of course that's disgraceful. And he expects them to say, yeah, that's disgraceful to have her hair cut off. If that's disgraceful, then let her cover her head. So we have to unpack what all of that means. And there's a pretty bold statement by Paul, by the way. Yeah. He says, if she is unwilling to cover her head, if this woman comes into the worship assembly, the the service, the gathering of the saints by which they come together to worship the Lord, which, by the way, was probably not Sunday morning from 11 to noon or whatever, you know, that something bigger than that, but we apply it to this context. If she is unwilling to cover her head, let her hair be shorn, let her be shaved. Notice that he doesn't say, let her cut her hair. Instead, he says, let her have her hair cut off. It's an action that is happening to her, not an action that she is taking. He seems to be indicating that the shaving of her head is not something that she's chosen, per se, but is something that is done irrespective of her wishes. And most women would not choose such a thing. There are some women in our culture who I think uh, very much we see it as a sign of, of um, unwillingness to notice the difference and submit to the difference between men and women. There are some women in our culture who have shaved their heads. But most women would not choose such a thing. I have to ask, how many of you women in this room would like to have your head shaved? How many of you women would like to be taken out and have someone else shave your head? And for for most women, that would be a humiliating experience. It's natural that it's just humiliating. We don't even need to know why. You just know that would be awful. I'm not even sure why it would be awful. That would just be awful. And that's why the culture of Corinth, in in that culture, not only slave women would have their heads shaved, because it was humiliating and demeaning, but also women who had been caught in adultery would have their heads shaved. It served as a scarlet letter of sorts, indicating shame and dishonor. But why specifically would the shaving of a woman's head, either in the first century or today, why would that be considered dishonoring? Well, because a woman's hair is a major part of what makes her a woman. You you know, I didn't realize this until I started studying this text, and I began to work through this text that there are three stages of hair development, and I... um, I live with a woman who went to cosmetology school. 
I should know this, but obviously I don't know a lot about hair, right? There's three stages of hair development, growth, rest, and fallout. And as I read that, I thought, well, that makes sense. Um, I understand the fallout part. And the, the hormone estrogen, which um, cause, in women causes a woman's hair to stay in stage one much longer than men's hair. Wow, that's really neat that there's this biological difference that causes women's hair to grow naturally longer and more beautiful. It's a natural part of a female's physical beauty. That's why you see men go bald more than women. That's why you see men, when they grow the hair long, like really long, it just doesn't look that good, right? It just looks like it's kind of dead and hanging there. Well, it's apparently because it is. It's just dead and hanging there. It's getting ready to fall out. But women's hair, it stays in that first stage of growth much longer. Because hair is a natural part of a female's physical beauty. I want to read Deuteronomy, a part of Deuteronomy 10 verse, uh, 21, excuse me, verses 10 through 14. And I'm going to try to go fast because I've got lots of words, lots of notes, and very little time. Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14 says this, when you go out to battle against your enemies and the Lord God delivers them into your hands and you take them away captive. She says, you go to war, you take captives, and you see among the captives beautiful, a beautiful woman, and you have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself, then, here's what you shall do, Deuteronomy says, it says, you shall bring her in your home, to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She also shall remove the clothes of her captivity, and shall remain in your house, and mourn her father and mother for a full month. After that, you may go in to her, and be her husband, and she may be your wife. It shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes, but you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. So there's this idea that cutting of a woman's nails, the shaving of her head, removing the clothes of her captivity are a way of humbling her. But it's also an evidence of God's grace, even here in Deuteronomy. If you go into a land, you declare war, you're fighting these people, and you take these people as captive, and you bring this woman into your house, and you think, wow. She's pretty. I want to marry her. Because naturally what would happen, the close of, act of captivity refers to women who would dress beautifully so that when they were taken captive, the men would appreciate them and say, wow, she's pretty. I'm going to spare her life. I'm not going to have her be a slave. I'm going to take her as my wife. And God says, if that happens to you, and you take the city captive, and you see this beautiful woman, and you go, I want her as my wife. Bring her into your house. Shave her head. Clip her nails take off her beautiful garments, and wait a month. This is God's grace. This is God's grace to this woman. And it, it's humbling her, but it's God's grace to say, then, only then, if you are still attracted to her, then take her as your wife. Because these signs, the, the long nails, the long beautiful hair, the garments, were signs of beauty. He says, don't be drawn just to her physical beauty. If those things, if after a month you've done all those things and you're not attracted to her, okay, then don't marry her, but you shall let her go wherever she wishes. You shall certainly not sell her as a slave at that point. That your affection for her needs to be far greater than affection for long hair and beautiful nails and a beautiful dress. You've humbled her in that way. And you've tested your own affections for why you want this woman. So that's why many women who go through chemotherapy and they lose their hair, they go and they get a wig. Right? It's not necessarily, it can be about vanity, but it's not necessarily about vanity. 
If one of you gets cancer, you go through chemotherapy and you lose all your hair and you go and get a wig, I am not going to be the guy who says, you are so vain. What is wrong with you? You, you? you need a wig? Can't you just rejoice in the fact that you, now you're bald? No, because you've lost a God-given physical attribute that sets you apart from men, that, that points to your beauty as a woman. And it's not wrong to say, I desire that. It's only because of the fall that cancer and chemotherapy and that trash exists. Getting caught up in my wire here. So a woman's hair is, as verse 15 says, a glory to her. And the removing of it would be the stripping away of part of her glory. It's the stripping away of part of her honor as a woman. It would be dishonoring is what the text says. So Paul clearly says to the Corinthian believers that a woman is to cover her head. That is, she is to cover her physical head, her hair, the symbol of her glory. And if she doesn't, let her be shamed. When a woman comes into the worship service, let her cover her head, let her cover the symbol of her glory, her beauty, her womanhood, for if she doesn't, let her be shamed by the removing of that glory. She's unwilling to cover it, let her have it removed. For if she remains uncovered, she's bringing dishonor to those who have been given special authority over her. So what again was the problem in Corinth? The problem was that women had their heads uncovered in the worship service. They were openly and freely displaying their glory by having their heads uncovered. And thus they were bringing attention to themselves. This is the same problem that Paul was addressing in 1 Timothy 2 verses 9 through 12, I believe, where we read this. 1 Timothy 2 verses 9 through 12. We read, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or, and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. You see, the problem was not just that their hair was exposed, as though God has a problem with women's hair. He created it. The problem was that they were exposing their heads and what that exposure of their hair pointed to. Instead of coming to worship with a sign of submissiveness on their head, instead of pointing to God's glory, they were pointing to their own. This can be likened to the example a number of years ago where it became a popular thing for women to burn their undergarments as a sign of solidarity and protest against the idea of submission. In the same way, the Corinthian women were protesting the reality, the reality of submission. They were protesting this reality, the principle, by not living within the cultural expression of that reality. Just like it would not be normative for someone within our culture to come to Harmony and say, you know, that church is not loving or caring because they didn't greet me with a holy kiss. Neither is it likely that someone would come to Harmony today in our culture and say, those women are seeking to glorify themselves when they worship for they're not wearing head coverings. In other words, the head covering, or more accurately, uh, the lack thereof, represented something. It represented something then that it doesn't today. That it's not so much that the issue was they needed to have a head covering. It was the fact that they took their head coverings off and what that signaled to the church, what that signaled about 
what they felt and their uh, rebellion against the principle of male headship. You know, in the same way, we have different things that mean different things within our culture. So a number of years ago, it was very common to see men wear suits and ties to church. And someone might say, and they might do that for a good cause. And they might say, you're putting your best forward. You're, you're wearing your best on Sunday morning. You're showing respect to God. And as our culture has changed, that has changed dramatically. In fact, I would argue that suits today are primarily worn by businessmen and only businessmen. They're the primary place of wearing a suit. It used to be when you went on a trip, you're going to go on a train, you're going to go on a plane. What do you do? You put on your suit because you want to look, um, look put together. You want to look like you're showing respect. And that's not at all the case today. If you run into somebody on a plane who's wearing a suit, you say, where are you going on business? Right? Because it, it communicates something entirely different. And in our culture, we don't typically anymore, we've seen where this, this transition has happened. Somebody doesn't come to church without a suit and we go, wow, he's disrespectful. Instead, we say, no, that doesn't necessarily signify that any longer. Now, by contrast, I want to say this. I want to say, because I'm making the argument, and I'm going to continue to make the argument that it's culturally, that it was a cultural symbol of submission that maybe doesn't exist today. That being said, I want to say this very plainly and very clearly. It is not wrong to wear a head covering any more wrong, any more than it is wrong to wear a suit and tie to church. That if your goal is to say, I want to dress in such a way that I'm showing God respect, that I'm showing Him glory, that I want to wear my best, I want to put my best foot forward for God, that is a good thing. And in the same way, if a woman puts on a head covering and says, I want to do this to show my submission to godly leadership, to male leadership, and to ultimately to God, that is a good thing. And in the same vein, it would be wrong for a woman to dress in such a way that it brings attention to her womanly beauty. That what the Corinthian women were doing was they were removing their head covering to display their glory. And we don't, need to, we don't even need to talk about just the idea of sexual uh, dressing sexually for women to display their glory. If somebody came in here just dressed to the nines, right, with fancy, fancy clothing and fancy jewelry and just $400 handbag, right, and came in here, you would have to think, why are they so, why are they dressed that way? Why are they drawing so much attention to themselves. See, the point is, don't elevate your physical beauty so much that you've, dis- you've detracted from the idea of submission and authority. Don't point to your glory, point to God's glory. And I say that to say, that doesn't mean that it's wrong for a woman to wear nice clothes. It just simply means that it's wrong for a woman to try to draw attention to herself to her own physical appearance, her glory. So, wow, we got through point number two. Um, So having seen the principle that God has given men and women different roles in the home and the church, we're to glorify God in these roles, and number two, the problem that women in Corinth were pointing to their own glory and not God's glory. Now let's consider number three, the priority. Number three, the priority. Look at verses seven through ten with me. Verses seven through ten say this. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. 
For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Well, verses 4 through 6 showed us what should not have been happening in Corinth. These verses show us what should have been happening in Corinth. The priority in Corinth should not have been to honor oneself, but instead for both men and women to bring glory, to show the value and worth of their head. You see, for men that meant leading like Christ, living a life of servant leadership, laying down his life for the sake of the one he was leading. And for women that meant respecting those who had been placed in leadership over them as a means of pointing to God's authority in her life and ultimately painting a picture of the church's submission to Christ. That's exactly what we see in 1 Peter 3, verses 1-5. through There we read this. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Peter writes, Women, you want to point your husbands to Christ? Point them to the gospel. Don't show them your glory. Don't just decorate yourself to win their affections. Show them His glory by adorning yourself with a gentle and quiet spirit, submissiveness that points them to the gospel. In other words, what Peter is driving at is real love, real change, comes when your husband's affections are set on Christ and not you. The point is that a woman has the opportunity to point her husband and others to the gospel by having a gentle, quiet, submissive spirit. And this is a radical idea to some, but I think it's important to dwell on. You know, women, a number of years ago, I remember um, some women that I, some Christian women that I knew reading a book called uh, Love is Tough. Now, in fairness, I haven't read the book, okay? So that's, in, but just the title turned me off. Because I'm thinking, hmm, 1 Corinthians 13, I remember love being a lot of things. Love is patient, love is kind, does not provoke, does not, hmm. I don't remember love is tough in 1 Corinthians 13 for some reason. So I went back and I looked and nope, sure enough, you know, it's not there. You see, the point is, women, you want to win your husband to Christ? It's not that you stand up and say, look at me. It's instead that you say, I'm going to submit and I'm going to point to the gospel. I'm going to paint a picture of the gospel even when this person is disobedient. Not that you cause them, or that you allow them to cause you to disobey, but so far as you can obey, you obey and you point to submission to Christ. It's a radical idea, a gentle, quiet, submissive spirit that just says, I'm going to show you what it means to submit to Christ. I'm going to show you what it means to be a believer who submits to Christ out of reverence for Him. I'm going to paint a picture of the Gospel. So when the church gathered for worship, the men were not to cover their heads as though they were women. But instead, they were to live out the leadership role that God had placed them in. And far too often, I find men, Christian men, live in such a way and participate in the activities of the local assembly in such a way that they might as well be wearing a head covering. And far too often, the majority of church leadership teams are comprised of women 
because the men would rather sit back and sheepishly let the women do the hard work of leading. Men, that is not what God intended for you, for the home, or for the church. It's not. But I don't want to put the blame solely on men. Don't forget Genesis 3.16, which we read last week. That there's this tension that exists. He shall have authority over you and you shall desire His place. You shall desire Him and His role of headship. That there's this battle that takes place because of the fall. But men, you are called to lead. You are called to lead well. To lead like Christ who laid down His life and loved the church. When that doesn't happen, it's two-sided. The issue's two-sided. Both are to blame. Priority is clear in our, in our text. Men bring glory, honor to God by leading. Women bring glory, that is honor to men, by following. Why? Because it brings glory to God when we both live out a life of submission to Him and within the God-ordained roles that He has placed us in. It's a, deed, it's a way of making sure that we do not seek to bring glory to ourselves, but instead seek to bring glory to Him. Now, Before we move on, I think it's imperative that we address the issue of wearing head coverings today as it relates to verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9, Paul points back to creation. And Paul's appeal to creation has been understood by some, by many, to mean that this, the wearing of head coverings, is a universal, not a cultural truth. That, in other words, women should wear head coverings today because Paul points to creation and says, this created order existed in all time, not just in Corinth in a set period of time. Instead, I think that verses 8 and 9, Paul is not appealing to the created order as a defense of head coverings. Instead, he is appealing to the creation as a defense for his statement that man is the image of God, image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. In other words, he points to creation as a defense of the principle, not the specific application of that principle within the context of that culture. He's saying, he's saying, listen, I want you to understand that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And it's been that way since the beginning of time because that is the way God created them, male and female. Hopefully that's clear as mud. So before we move on, I also need to mention that the phrase at the end of this section, verse 10, says, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. There are many opinions as to what this might mean. After all, who are the angels? Why do they motivate obedience? Or how do they motivate obedience? I don't want to spend a lot of time here because some of the greatest scholars, far more knowledgeable than me, simply say, I'm not sure what he's saying. And so rather than making an emphatic but wrong statement, I'd rather say, I'm not sure, but here's what I think. It seems to me that the most logical explanation is that the angels being referred to here are in fact spiritual beings. They're not just messengers, human messengers, but they're spiritual beings, the holy angels, as opposed to human messengers, and that they love to see and hear the gospel proclaimed. Angels love the gospel. First Peter explains that very fact about the angels. He talks about the prophets of old. And the prophets of old, they sought to know as they were predicting, as they were telling the future and talking about the coming Messiah. They wanted to know what they were talking about and they longed to see it. And it says, it was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That the Old Testament prophets, they, they looked forward to the gospel and they wanted to know more about it. 
and that now it's been revealed to us, the truth of the gospel, and then he says, things into which angels long to look. See, the angels long to look at the gospel. And they love to see the gospel being made known and lived out. Because they were present when God created the world, according to Job 38.7. And they witnessed the fall of man. And they marvel at the grace. Something that angels have not experienced. Angels have no idea uh, what the grace of God feels like. They don't, they don't understand the grace of God because they haven't fallen, they haven't sinned, and then been forgiven, been redeemed. And they look at us and they marvel that I believe this place is full of angels who are going, wow, the gospel is being proclaimed. God's grace. Angels love God's grace because they love God. And God's grace brings glory to Him. So they love to see men and women point to the gospel. So He says, cover your heads because of the angels. You get an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. The angels are watching. So having seen, number one, the principle, number two, the problem, number three, the priority, now let's consider, number four, the proper perspective. I'm not going to dwell here. Verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Whoever in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. I think we covered this topic in pretty good measure last week. However, I want you to see that if Paul, I want you to see that if uh, Paul wants to correct any misunderstanding, he is doing so to, to correct the idea that women are inferior to men. He's pointing to the mutual dependence that exists between men and women. Men, you're not off the hook. Not, you don't go home and say, well, the pastor said that you need to submit to me. You were taken out of my rib. Oh yeah, you know what? You were born out of a woman. That there's this mutual dependence that exists. That there's this complementarianism that, that exists between men and women. They complement each other. They make the two halves, make something better than, the, better than the two independent parts. The whole is better than the two parts. So don't leave here thinking... The pastor at that church thinks that women are inferior to men. Oh, no, no. Not at all. Neither is the woman independent of man, nor is the man independent of woman. Just the opposite. The scripture says that woman was given for the man's sake, that the man needed woman. It, wasn't say, it doesn't say that, well, you know, men, women, they really needed a man. If you know anything about what it means to be married, you know men need women. Adam needed a wife, much like I need a wife. So you're not off the hook. You need to have the proper perspective. There's mutual dependency. So having seen the principle, the problem, the priority, the proper perspective, now let's consider the final point in our sermon outline, the proper practice. Look at verse, uh, verses 13 through 16. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it not proper for a woman to pray to God with her head covered? The expected answer is, no, it's not proper. Paul wants you to understand this. Why? Well, look at verse 14. Why? Because does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her? For her hair is given as a covering? The word nature carries the idea of instinct or an innate sense of what is right. So Paul is saying, doesn't even your natural sense of what is proper tell you that when a woman has long hair, it's a symbol of her worth as a woman? That it's a symbol of her beauty. It points to her femininity and beauty as a woman. However, when a man does that, doesn't it just detract from his masculinity just a little bit? 
See, Paul could say this because the Corinthians had a natural sense of what men were supposed to look like in that culture. And just like it would be unnatural for me to wear a skirt, that in some cultures that would be okay. But in this culture, if I wore a skirt, everything within me would say, this is not natural, this is not right. And everything within you, I assure you, would say, that is not natural, that is not right. Not because skirts are sinful, but because in this culture, that is what women wear. It's also important to note that the word covering is a different word here than the word used throughout the rest of this text. It's important to note that because some have argued that the head covering that Paul is referring to is a woman's hair, that her hair serves as a covering. A woman must cover her head and her hair is her covering. That's not what Paul is saying. The word used uh, elsewhere refers to the idea of hiding or concealing. It's catacalypto. And it's the idea of, of covering oneself. Whereas the word here, parabolio, refers to the idea of apparel. So in context, the point is not that God has given woman a natural head covering, a natural covering. Just the opposite is actually the case. Instead, he says, but her hair is given to her to adorn herself, to make her beautiful. Thus it glorifies her. And the point being, there's no place to glorify yourself in worship. That women should not come into the assembly seeking to glorify themselves with the way they dress, with the way they act, with the, way, with the things they wear, or even the way they speak or pray. And we work hard at this. And you know what? We don't do it perfectly, but I assure you, we work hard at this. I pray that if I asked any one of you, prior to me getting up to preach, who leads the worship service? Before I get up to preach, Who leads the worship service on Sunday morning? It's Bill. It's Bill who leads the worship service. He takes the role of leading. And yes, he has Kim. And yes, he has Sue. But clearly, the leader is Bill in that context. And that's intentional. It's to point to something. It's to point to a greater reality. It's not that Kim or Sue are not capable. It's not that they're not worthy. It's that we're pointing to a greater reality of submission to the roles that he has placed us in as we point to the reality of the church submitting to Him. And to remove one's head covering was to bring glory to herself, was to bring glory to her. Finally, Paul says in verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. The Greek literally, more literally, like the ESV and the King James Version translate it, reads this, but if one is inclined to be contentious, We have no such practice. He's not saying there's no other practice other than wearing head coverings. Instead, he's saying, if you are inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor have any of the churches of God. The women in Corinth were being contentious. They were, in a sense, Sue coming up here next Sunday and pushing Bill out of the way, doing a little hip check and saying, all right, we're going to lead the service now, and here's how it's going to go, by removing their head coverings. They were pointing to their beauty, their worth, instead of humbly following the lead, the authority that God had placed over them. So, having considered all these things, right? having seen the principle that God has given men and women different roles to play in the church and in the home and where to reflect His glory and the living out of these things, the problem, the women in Corinth were pointing to their own glory and not God's glory when they gathered, 
the priority that men bring glory and honor to God by leading and women bring glory and honor to men by demonstrating submission, by following as we both live out a life of submission to Christ and playing within the, living within the God-ordained roles that He has placed us in. And number four, the proper perspective that men and women need each other. It's not that one's better than the other, but that we are complementary. We complement each other. And that, by the way, is a gift from God. Thus, the recognition of that gift honors Him. As we see those things, then we see the proper practice that we are called to live in such a way that we are seeking to uh, honor Him in our practice. As we consider all those things, the question is this. After two long weeks in this text, how do we apply all of this, both individually and corporately, specifically here at Harmony Bible Church? Well, number one, we need to live in light of the principle. God has given men and women different roles in the family and in the church, and we must do all that we can to reflect His glory and live out these roles. Number two, we must do nothing to hinder the gospel. We must not seek to lift up ourselves, to make ourselves known. This is not just individually, but also corporately. Far too many churches want to make a name for themselves. Far too many pastors want to make a name for themselves. Don't hear me say, oh, this message applies to women. Women who come in and they're dressing in all these fancy clothes and braiding the hair and trying to look beautiful to distract everybody from God. Oh no, I assure you, men distract people from the gospel too. And if I, I pray that if I ever become a distraction from the gospel, when I stand up here, that you tackle me, take me down, get me out of this pulpit. For it is not me that I want you to see, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that I want you to see week after week after week. Do nothing to hinder the gospel. Don't stand in the way of the gospel. Instead, do everything to further the gospel. Men don't hinder the gospel in your leading. Women don't hinder the gospel in your following. Or men don't hinder the gospel in your lack of leading. Or women in your lack of following. Instead, do everything to further the gospel in your homes and in your worship, in all of life. Ask yourself, what picture am I painting here? Am I painting a picture that promotes, that points to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what He has done for me, his child. And I pray that as a church, we seek to live out that principle. And that principle is going to look different. I believe that principle looks different in different cultures and different um, homes and different places of worship. But it is a principle that must be lived out in all of life. God has given men and women different roles in the family and in the church. And we must do all we can to reflect his glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for an opportunity to live in such a way that we can reflect your glory, that we can reflect the submission that you have called us to as believers, that we can reflect the marriage that we have between, uh, between us and your son. I thank you that though we are a far from perfect bride, that though we do not live out submission well, that we have a faithful husband, that we have your son Jesus who loves us, who's faithful when we are unfaithful, cares for us, who will carry us through to completion till the day of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.